Psalm 26. We begin reading in verse 1. The Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Now, more than likely, this is a psalm written by David when he was on the run from Saul. And we see uh, a significant amount of psalms that were written by him during that season of his life, which was probably one of the most difficult times in his life, you know, because he was on the run. And, you know, it wasn't just for, you know, a couple weeks or, I mean, we're talking, man, 10 years probably on the run, he was a fugitive, and he had done nothing wrong. And so it was during that, those days that he wrote a lot of the Psalms. You know, and I, and I just want to encourage you, just in case you're here tonight and you're going through hard times, you know, do what David did. He was open to the Lord, he sought God, and it was during those times, those dark times, those tough times, those times that, that didn't make any sense why he was struggling, why he was being attacked, why he was being accused, why he was on the run. It, it was during those times, I think, where God did the deepest work in his life. You know, it's been said that God doesn't do the deep works in the shallows of our soul. It's when we're going through the hard times. And so if you're here, you're going through hard times, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you, seek the Lord. It was during those hard times that he wrote songs. It was during those hard times that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write portions of the Bible. And so, you know, it's during this time that he prays and he asks God, notice again there in verse 1, to vindicate him. David is asking for vindication and that's Basically, David asking God to declare him innocent, right? And who knows, maybe it's just before God, you know, Lord, I want to make sure I'm innocent before you. Maybe it's before men, you know, but that's what he's asking. That's what he's praying. One translation says, God, declare me innocent, O Lord. And so David here is asking God for vindication. And and basically what he wants to do at the end of the psalm, we're going to see, is he wants to return to the tabernacle. So you think about it, you know, Saul's persecuting him. He gets, you know, kicked out of his land. He's on the run. He's in the case of Adullam. He's in the wilderness, and he can't go to the tabernacle. And we're going to see in Psalm 26 and 27 that basically he wants to return to the tabernacle because it's there, the mindset of Judaism is that it's there that I can really, truly meet with God. You know, and we're going to see that, you know, that's the heart behind the whole thing. And, and I, and I want to encourage you to have that same heart that you would want to meet with God, not just in a superficial fashion, but but truly, you know, meet with God. And so I want to show you a real quick picture of the tabernacle because we're going to talk about it a lot tonight. You know, there's a tabernacle, a hole, and you'll, you'll see the entrance there. Uh, and then you have the, the brass altar where they would uh, sacrifice, where they would have the burnt offerings. And then you have the, the, the laver there, the brass laver. That's where they would wash themselves. And then they would go into the tabernacle itself. And so... 
not a real big place, um, but this is where they would, you know, this is where they would meet with God, so to speak. The, the next one uh, picture, it gives us more of a close-up to the tabernacle, and you'll notice that when you enter into the tabernacle, you have the lampstand, you have the table of showbread, uh, both of those symbolic of God being in the presence of his people, uh, God being the light of the world. Then you have the altar of incense where the priests would go in and they would burn incense. It was symbolic of prayers that were going up to God. And then you have the most holy place. It would go, it would go beyond the veil right there. You have the Ark of the Covenant and the two cherubim. And it's there that the, the high priest would enter in once a year on the holiday they call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it was there where they would meet with God. That, that uh, Ark of the Covenant, where the two cherubim are, that was actually, in their perception, considered the throne of God. And so you've got to understand the tabernacle. David's on the run. He, he's bummed that he's on the run. But the main reason he wants to go back to the land is because he wants to be able to go back to the tabernacle. Because it's there. Their perception was it was there that they met with God. Okay? So with that as a backdrop, we have David here wanting to return to the tabernacle, but the reason he couldn't was because of his accusers. You know, and it's a tough place, you know, to be when you're accused of doing something you haven't done or of being someone you're not. They accused him of being a criminal or a wicked traitor. And, and, you know, so that's a tough place to be. And it's even tougher when the people believe those accusations against you, right? And the general consensus uh, uh, regarding David from the people was that he was guilty of his uh, uh, accusations. You know, Saul maybe told the citizens that, you know, he had some inside information. Uh, yes, David, you know, is a good soldier and everything. But according to our intelligence, he, he wants to take over the kingdom, Right. And so the, the truth is uh, Saul was jealous of David. He felt threatened by him. He wanted to kill him. He tried to kill him. Remember, he threw spears at him. And so uh, David, David ran. Now, here's the thing. David's the dude that killed Goliath. You guys remember that? David's the man that, that killed a bear. I know some of you guys are, are pretty big and, and buff. And, um, but how many of you guys do he kill a bear? He grabs it by the beard and he you know, slices his throat or, or a lion, you know? And so David, how many of you here, David could have killed Saul in a second. He was a warrior. He was a soldier. And so here's this guy, you know, accusing him, throwing spears at him. But David doesn't fight back like that, huh? What does David do? He does what we're reading right here. He prays, Right? And I'm, and I'm reminded of Psalm 109, verse 4. It's a psalm that you should all know, uh, maybe even by heart. It's a psalm of David. And it says, In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Wow. That's perfect. That's exactly who David was. He loved Saul. He loved God. He loved the people. But Saul accused him. Saul came against him. Saul uh, was, was after him. And, and what did David do? He gave himself to prayer. And that's what we need to do as well. He prays right here for vindication. And that word, it means to clear someone of blame or suspicion, right? Lord, vindicate me. Declare me innocent, O Lord, 
And, and he goes on to explain here, again, if you would look at verse 1, uh, for, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I mean, you know, I shall not slip. It, it, it might even be rendered probably better in the Hebrew. I have not slipped. I've, I've trusted you. I've held to my integrity. Uh, I'm not guilty of these things they're accusing me of. Lord, examine me. Prove me. Try my mind and my heart. And, and basically what David is saying here is, Lord, I'm blameless in this accusation. I don't want the throne. I don't want to, you know, over, you know, this whole mutiny thing. That's not in my heart. Lord, you know, look at my mind, look at my heart. It's not there. He asked God to examine him and, 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 and that, you know, there's nothing there that, that would indict him. And, and, and then we read in verse through, 3, for your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. And, and it's so cool. I love verse 3. This is kind of how David was able to walk right. It's because he thought right. It's because he was always mindful and aware of God's loving kindness. Notice again, verse 3, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. I mean, he was always aware of that. And I tell you what, if you're struggling to walk, or if you're struggling and, you, and you know, this you know, Christianity thing, you know, maybe it's because, you know, God's loving kindness is not before your eyes. You know, today, I hope my, mind, my wife doesn't mind me sharing this with you, but if she does, can you guys help me afterwards? Um, no, I just, you know, I was praying, we were praying, and I was so blessed. We were praying together because she prayed, Lord, thank you. I know you'll always love me. I know you'll always love me. And I tell you what, for me, hearing my wife pray that, when she prayed that, I said, Lord, thank you that she knows that. Thank you that she has understood the fact that, you know, we have our good days, we have our bad days, but that you will always love us. Doesn't mean he won't give us trancaso every once in a while or discipline us or deal with us, but it's always motivated by love. And that's what David says here. Your loving kindness is before my eyes and I, and I have walked in your truth. I tell you what, if you're struggling as a Christian, probably the part of the reason is because you just don't realize how much he loves you because when you let the love comes in, then that love goes out. It changes you. That's why John the Beloved was such a great uh, apostle because he knew who he was. He said, I am the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And so and here's David uh, knowing about God's love always before his eyes, and he's walking in God's truth, and he speaks of how he walked right in God's truth according to God's word. And then in verse 4, he speaks of the fact that he did not walk with the wicked. And so it's not only, you know, how you walk, but it's who you walk with. Who do you hang with? And we read in, in verse 4, notice what it says. It says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. You know, and for most of you here, maybe, uh, you know, you're doing good. You know, you're not, you're not hanging out. Your, your best friend is not uh, a non-believer. If you're here and you're a Christian and, and your best friend is a non-believer, 
then you, you got to be really careful with that. You have to make sure that you're not unequally yoked, you know? Um, you're, you, you don't hang with them right here. I don't, I don't sit with idolatrous people or go in with hypocrites, you know? This right here reminds me of Psalm 1, right? 1 and 2, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. If you're hanging out with non-believers, if that's your best friend, if that's your go-to, and you make that phone call or you go and you have that lunch when you're having a hard time and they're not a real Christian, then you're, you're, you're violating this principle that we see here is so important. David said, I, don't, I, I have not walked with them. As a matter of fact, I walk with your word. That's my counselor, Lord. You're my counselor. David here is saying, Lord, I'm not like those guys. You know, blessed is the man who walks not with ungodly, scornful sinners, lest he start taking the same stands they take. That's what it says in Psalm 1, or sit with them, get comfortable with them. David says there in Psalm 1, you know, I don't walk with the wicked, Lord. I walk in the word. And so he's asking, we go back to the very first portion here, vindicate me, Lord. Help me through this. Now, now here's something I was thinking about uh, as we enter into this psalm. You guys know eventually that David would be king, right? And so he's 16 years old. He's ruddy and good-looking, and the Bible says. He's just a kid. His dad didn't even think that he had any potential, so he didn't even bring him to the, the whole thing. But the Lord said, there's someone else. David comes. God anoints him as king, right? And so then you guys know the whole story. He eventually goes, he takes pizza to the soldiers, and then he sees what's going on with Goliath, and he says, that should not be. God must not be blasphemed like this. And so he goes and he, and he kills Goliath because he has faith. He's seen God's faithfulness in the past, and that moves him uh, to the future. And then he goes out, and you guys remember, he starts fighting the, the battles, and he's winning, and God is doing such a great work through him, Right? But then Saul begins to get jealous. Saul, you know, forces him to flee. And he's out there in the wilderness in the caves of Adullam and, and for 10 years. Now, here's the thing. You know, you might read that story and you might think, well, you know, God's going to bring him back and David won't have anything to do with it. You know, he'll fulfill his destiny and it's all in the sovereign will of God and he can just kick back and like a Cracker Jack and and not really have to do a whole lot, you know, it'll happen. No. During the time in the, in the desert days, David is fighting in a different way. He's kind of clawing his way back in his relationship with God. He's praying. He's singing. He's writing psalms. He's not passive. He is seeking after God with all of his heart. You know, and, and I just want to encourage you because just in case you're there and, you know, it's a, it's a time of, uh, it's a season of suffering or it's that, you know, a place where, man, it just doesn't seem to make any sense, uh, you know, but then you're just kicking back and you're like, oh, God's going to work it all out. You know, the, what I've learned when I read my Bible is Jacob wrestled with God. He wrestled in prayer. He wrestled in prayer, and he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. You guys, we have to fight for these things. We have to draw near to God. And that's what this psalm is, is. As he's there and he's in that whole season of suffering, he's writing psalms. He's seeking God. He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
You know, and he's saying, Lord, vindicate me. I've walked in my integrity, and Lord, I'm not hanging out with the wrong people. I'm sanctified. I'm separating myself unto you, Lord. And so he's fighting for his vindication. He's fighting for his restoration. And we need to do the same thing. You know, I, I, I do beg you, beware who you sit with, who you go with, who you uh, assemble with. Look again at verse 4 and 5. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers. Those are the parties and stuff where they all get together and, and I will not sit with the wicked, you know? I mean, you guys have to be so careful. I understand maybe there is a time where you might go evangelize them, but you know, man, when there is nothing good going on and there is no edification taking place, it's much easier, you guys know, to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up, right? I mean, when you start running with, with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. You're like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I, I have a best friend who's not a Christian. I'll be fine. And the Bible says, don't be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, It says, evil company corrupts good habits. You know, tell me who you're with. Who do you hang out with? And I tell you who you are. H- how, about, how about hanging out with not only Christians, but doing your best to hang out with Christians who love the Lord? You know, it's so important for us. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, right? But he, the companion of fools, will be destroyed. You know, and, and, and you, you know, you're iron sharpening, ironing, you're feeding off of each other, and you're growing. And so David here, he teaches us things that are so important. He, he prays, Lord, I, I didn't walk with the wicked. And then look, notice it in verse 6. It says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation, here it is, of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And so, you know, we saw the tabernacle there where they would go to the laver and they would wash their hands, right? And maybe that's what David is talking about here, about washing his hands in innocence. I think there is an aspect of that. You know, it's our normal mode of approaching God. Lord, I'm blameless in this accusation, but I'm not sinless. And every time you go before God, you you wash your hands. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I confess my sins, right? It's our normal mode of approaching God with a contrite heart. And so David says, but as I'm going to the altar, Lord, when I get there, it's so cool what he says, you know, verse 7, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. You know, one day God's going to restore me. One day I'm, I'm going to have my feet on solid rock. You know, along the way, I'm going to see miracles. Along the way, God's going to flex his muscles and show himself strong. I'm confident of this. And so he says, Lord, as I, as I go back and I wash my hands and I approach this altar, I want to I share, the, the, I'm going to speak with this voice of thanksgiving. I'm going to tell of all your wondrous works. You know, and that's our heart, right? 
you know, of course, the teaching of Judaism back then was that that was where the tabernacle was, where you were forgiven, and that was the location, they believe, of the special presence of God, the glory of God. And so, you know, David wanted to, to be there, and, and he said, God, if you would get me there, I'll be grateful that people will hear my voice of thanksgiving, and I'm going to tell them about all the awesome things that you've done. Now, I was reading today, and we don't have time to get into it, but there are countries all around the world where it's illegal to assemble the way that we're assembled today. I mean, you go to, to North Korea, they're probably the number one offender, Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, and you try to assemble the way that we're assembled here, it, it's, it's illegal in, in many places. And so... Let me ask you a question. What would it be like in your life if, if it came to the place where the government said you can't assemble and have a Bible study? And you know, nowadays, you guys know how it is. There's cameras everywhere, right? Right now, there's cameras watching you. I'm just joking. There's cameras everywhere. So they said from this point forward, it is no longer legal for you to assemble together as a congregation. And there'll be no worship, there'll be no pastor teaching, there'll be no, you know, one doing sound or just the way that we gather together. And then, you know, and then a week goes by, you don't get it. A month goes by, years go by. I wonder if you would miss it. I miss those times that we used to get together and worship and open up the Bible and we would, we would study together. I miss those times, you know, the coffee, the fellowship, the marriage fellowships, you know, just different things. And would your heart ache? I mean, that was a place. The presence of God, they met with God. Imagine, you know, a lot of people don't come to church even though they can. But imagine if you couldn't. That's kind of where David was. You know, and he wanted to go back to the tabernacle. I have to ask myself, am I grateful for this amazing privilege of being able to come before God's throne at any time and, and to be here at this altar and, and even to hang out at his house, so to speak, right? I mean, David says there in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He contrasts it in verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hand is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. You know, and that is definitely a reference to Saul, because Saul bribed the guys to be his men. You know, we read that in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 7. You know, and, and, you know, Lord, I don't want to be with them, David says. Or I don't want to be like them. I don't want to suffer the judgment that these guys are going to suffer. No, he says in verse 11, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. And so, Lord, redeem me. This is all a prayer. Lord, be merciful to me. You know, my foot stands in an even place in the congregation, and I will bless the Lord. You know, so he's out there and he's asking God, and, and maybe you're here and you need to ask God, Lord, bring me back to you. Maybe you drifted away. Lord, redeem me, buy me back, bring me back. Maybe some of you this evening need, you know, to pray that prayer to the Lord. You know, when I look at this right here, it's such an interesting combination of integrity on God's part and mercy, I'm sorry, integrity on David's part 
and mercy on God's part. And, and in one sense, it's always like that. Listen, you want to, you know, you want, you want the Lord, then, you know, repent. I mean, do you think that you're going to find God, really experience God if you're getting high? If you're, you're smoking pot? You're drinking? You know, you're looking at, at porn? You're lusting after chicks? You think you're, you're really going to find God if that's you? No, you won't. I mean, I've, you find yourself, and you know the Holy Spirit convicts you. The Holy Spirit says, you can't watch that television show. You can't watch that movie. I mean, the Holy Spirit is talk, talking to you. And, and so it's up to you, man. You can have it if you want. Go get high. But don't expect to find God. He tells you to pray. Uh, maybe some other time. Don't expect to find God. He loves you. He's drawing you to him. And so with this psalm right here, it's a combination of David's integrity. David's integrity. And at the same time, God's mercy. And God will do a work. God will bring him back. God will make him king. And God will do whatever he has destined for you in your life but not with one foot in and one foot out, not with a half heart. You know, it's interesting how the next psalm, it goes hand in hand with Psalm 26. It seems to continue the theme. Notice in verse 1, the, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, maybe you're here tonight and, and for whatever reason you're afraid of, of things. You're afraid of maybe that's going to happen or whatever. You know, um, you don't have to be afraid. And, and the simple reason that David wasn't afraid of anyone, he wasn't afraid of anyone. Of whom shall I be afraid? No one. You know, of whom shall I fear? Nothing. You know, the simple reason that he wasn't afraid of anyone or anything is because the Lord, was his light. The Lord was his salvation. The Lord was his strength. Listen, Christian, you don't have to be afraid. The Lord is your light in the darkness that dispels all of the dark forces that come against you. The Lord is your salvation, and that means he'll deliver you from death, both physical and spiritual. The Lord is your strength, and, and you know, we all are weak, on our own strength. But when we have his strength, then we're invincible, right? I mean, it wasn't a bright man who lighted David's path. It wasn't an army securing his salvation or deliverance from death. It wasn't the muscles of some mighty man or mighty angels. It was none other than the mighty God himself. The Lord is my light, my salvation, my strength. Listen, I just pray you would listen and let it sink in. You don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything or the future. It's all in God's hands. You know, is the enemy trying to strike fear in your hearts? Listen, don't let him because we know that fear and faith, they can't coexist. 
You know, let the fact that the Lord is with you, for you, and love you take those fears away. I always pray this prayer. Lord, replace the, the childish fears with childlike faith. 1 John 4.20, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, it casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And, and there's a lot to that verse, but part of the verse is you understanding how you're loved by God. And when that really sinks in, when that perfect work of the, uh, of the truth of God's love, it finds a home in your heart, then you won't be afraid anymore. You know, David here, verse 2, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> Eat of my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and, and fell. And, you know, it's good to remember God's faithfulness. David did, and he had fought many battles with bears, lions, giants, armies, demons, and out of them all, God had delivered him and given him the victory. In verse 3, it says, though an army may encamp against me. Think about that, a whole army. And they did, huh? They did. My heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. I love that confidence. It's not that you're self-confident. It's that you're confident in Christ. And, 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 and if this is a time when, again, when David's on the run from Saul, who's under the influence of Satan, you know, the enemy is trying to run him out and in one sense ruin his relationship with God, Right? And it's interesting when we read right here the resolve of David. He refuses to give up on being restored to the tabernacle, which, again, was symbolic of his presence, God's presence. And so I love verse 4. Notice what it says. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He was focused, wasn't he? You know, let me ask you a question. What would you ask for if God were to say to you, I'll give you one thing? Some of you would probably say, that's not fair. Even genies give three wishes, right? <laughs> no, I'm just messing. What, what would you say if God said, I'll give you one thing. What if it all boiled down to one thing? I think some people would say, Lord, the lottery. That would solve all my problems. Money is the answer. You know, there are some people here in your heart, if you were honest, you would say, oh, master, I just want to be married. That's the one thing I desire. Or, you know, maybe you're here and there's something else going on. And, and you can tell because it consumes your thoughts. It consumes your time. Maybe him, her, or this position. If I can just get that position. And, and right here, David knows better than that, man. He's a man ahead of his own time. He knew Matthew 6.33 before it was written, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that all these other things will be added unto you. Listen, the one thing is what David is talking about, right? And when, you, when that one thing is put in its priority, when that becomes the, the master passion of your life, then everything else falls into place. 
One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the, the days of my life, right? How many of the days would you like to be there? All the days of my life. What do you want to be there for? What for? What do you want to be there? Why are you at church so much? Some people used to ask me that when I first became a Christian because I think I was there eight days a week. <laughs> and so they're like, why do you always go? Why do you always go? And here's the answer, because I want to seek the Lord. I, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, I, I want to go and I want to, when he talks about inquiring of the Lord, I want to ask him for direction. You know, I mean, what do I do, Lord? What's the next step? It's okay to come and, and go to Bible study and, and some people read their Bible and it is a mirror, right? Exposing our imperfections and, and we need that, Right? And like David, we do look to his word and long for directions in life. But right here, notice the first and foremost by far is not, not necessarily a mirror, but maybe a microscope, maybe a telescope, so to speak, so that we could see the beauty of God. You know, and, and when you see God, his amazing attributes, his holiness, his love. You know, I do encourage you, when you read your Bible, don't just look and see, well, what do I got to do? no. Try to ask yourself, how does it reveal God to me? That's got to be first and foremost, right? Because we read in verse 5, For in the, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I mean, there you see God putting David out of reach of the enemy. He's hidden. He's high. He's on this rock. He says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. You know, and, and in looking at this again, you know, he's asking for protection and deliverance from Saul. You know, he's confident of it. He's confident of his ultimate protection and deliverance from his enemies and and I, and I and i pray we would be the same i mean are you confident are you radiant in the fact that god will deliver you we even more so should be because we have new testament light and we have the cross of calvary and all that god's done for us you know verses 7 through 12 as we close our, our prayer and notice what he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. And again, what do you do when you're on the, being assaulted, accused, in the, in, the, in the valley, in the dark days of you don't understand? And, and what do you do? You know, you seek the Lord. You know, God says that we are to seek him. Um, and, and, and he says it over and over and over again. And, and I don't know if we do the way that we should. You know, they say that guys have a hard time finding things. I don't know if that's true. Hey, Dad, can you get the ketchup? Oh, we're all out. My wife says, oh, no, there's some there. No, there's not. I looked two times. You know, you can't see it. Next thing you know, she comes and she finds it. It's right there in front of you. You know, and I think that sometimes we seek the Lord like that. You know, it's, it's, it's like God says, seek my face. And, and our heart has to say to him, Lord, 
I, I will seek your face. That's got to come from the heart. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Yeah. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, it's interesting in that passage. I know we've heard it a million times. But, but notice again that, that God has uh, thoughts of, 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 of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Did you notice that? So usually when we read that verse, we immediately think, well, that's when they're set free from Babylon. That's not what the, the, the verse says. It says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. That's the future. That's the hope. That's the relationship. It's not just being set free from Babylon, although that's part of it. It primarily is you're free. You're free when you seek the Lord. I mean, there's a guy, there's men and women in prison who are more free than people out here because they're seeking the Lord. That's our future. That's our hope. That's our life. You know, God says to all of us, seek my face, you know, and, and that's a reference to his personal presence, you know, not just superficial, right? It, it's not like, you know, a, a social media friendship through text messages over the phone, you know. It's even better than FaceTime, although it's kind of cool. It's face-to-face. It's heart-to-heart. It's that place where, man, you know, you're, you're with the Lord. And, and, I, and I was just reading this, and I know we're almost done here. Hold on. Don't, don't tune out yet. Okay, I know you guys are thinking I'm hungry, Manny. Because this is so important, okay? What, what was the epitaph of Moses' life? You guys know, huh? Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. You know, and so you guys remember Moses would go up the mountain and and he would really, you know, he would spend time with God face to face, right? And it was a privilege that he had. And do you guys remember that after he would spend time with the Lord, that his face would glow? Do you guys remember that? You were there, right? No, I'm just joking. You read it in the Bible. <laughs> and so um, he would come down the mountain. He was different. He was transformed. So you, you fast forward to 2 Corinthians, and it talks about the same thing. But it says that Moses' glory, it faded away. Ours doesn't. It's in the face-to-face encounters with God that you and I are changed. There's people here, myself included, no offense, you need to change. You need to be more like Jesus. How is it going to happen? It will happen in the face-to-face encounters with God where you seek his face. You know, one of the things I was reading, it's real interesting, and I know you guys know this, have you ever been misunderstood? Maybe it was a text message that you sent to someone Recently, we had a, an incident where it was an email that was misunderstood, you know, and, uh, you know, sometimes it can happen real easily where a person is misunderstood because of the fact that it's, you know, uh, written or even over the phone. But that's why they say whenever you're going to have, like, something real heavy and important, you got to meet face-to-face. 
because it's there that you can immediately see their expression. You can see the smile. You might see the, the look of love in their eyes. You know, they, you can immediately ask them a question. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah, okay. Because you're there face to face. That's how we need to be with God. You guys, we got to go in deeper. I'll never forget that quote I read by Tozer. He said, the church waits for the, the voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. That's who we need to be. And when the Lord said, seek my face, David said in his heart, your face, that type of relationship, that type of communion, God will be the passion of my life. It's going to be the greatest desire of your life to seek the Lord like that. I always tell you guys that's the key is your communion with God. And so David says, Lord, I'll do what you've asked me to do. And, and he prays four times right here. God, here's some things I ask that you don't do. Look at verse 9. Uh, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. You know, sometimes you don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you have, right? Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me and such as breathe out violence, right? I mean, Lord, they're lying in their accusations against me. They want to kill me violently, Lord. Do not hide from me, do not turn me away, do not leave me, nor forsake me, do not deliver me to the will of my enemies. And of course, we know God will never do that, but we still pray those things. And it's interesting how David is asking all this, but at the same time, he knows that God won't do these things, right? I mean, he knows, even to the extent that if the whole world forsook him, including his father and mother, Sometimes it's our, our spouse. I mean, it's so many things. Friends, you would have never thought. It doesn't matter. God said, listen, I will always be there for you. He would never do such a thing as forsake his people. David was confident of God's care. You know, one thing we touched on last week was how part of the way God protects and directs us is by his teaching of us, right? And that's what you read there in verse 11, how David asked that God would teach him his ways. And then when David here speaks of a smooth path, we read that right there, you know, because you might wonder, well, what does that mean? You know, uh, the smooth path in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path. You know, you might be thinking, well, God's asking, David's asking God that everything would be easy. Now, should, if you're a Christian, shouldn't it just be e like hunky dory? No way. What, what he's really saying right here, he's not necessarily asking for things to be easy to the point where it would take him out of the will of God just as long as it's easy. No, he's asking that the path be paved in this perfect will of God because you guys know this, being in the will of God at times is hard, but being out of the will of God is harder. And so in one sense, it's smoother. 
I think of the New Testament parallel in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's kind of the, the New Testament parallel. When David is asking for something smooth, he's asking, like Jesus said, that he, we can have for something easy. But of course, we know it's not easy in, in that classic sense of the world. It's, it's word is not easy. It's still a yoke. But the yoke of the enemy, the world and the flesh is a lot worse than the yoke that Jesus will give you. And not only that, when it's the yoke that Jesus gives you, he carries it with you. So Lord, make my path smooth. Lord, make it kind of easy like that. And that's what will happen. You won't have to be like, oh, I'm trying to love this person. I just can't love them, you know. <laughs> and you try to, no, you know what? It'll flow. It'll flow. It'll be the Lord, you know. I mean, it's easier, it's smooth because of who you're working for and who you're walking with, and that is Jesus. And so, you know, I don't know. I wonder how many people died being in situations like David was in. And I wonder how many people have given up, Christians even sometimes, who are in situations that you're in. You know, the, you guys are going through hard times here. I know you are. And there's a lot of people out there that, have given up. You know, praise God for what David did. He didn't give up. Look at verse 4, 13. I, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so he tells, now it's kind of cool. He tells us all, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And so David here, he teaches us, like it says in Galatians 6, 9, and do not let us grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So don't give up, right? I mean, uh, he says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed Romans 8, 28. I, if I, unless I knew that verse, man, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. I would have lost heart unless I, unless I, I, I didn't have, if I didn't have Romans 8, 28, I would have lost heart. But I have it. And I know through all these things that I'm going through that God is going to work something good in my life. And so he says, what? Wait on the Lord. And what does that mean? It means don't be hasty. It means be submissive to him. It means be patient. You know, last week we talked about the fact that we cheerfully wait when we are certain that we shall not wait in vain. And in due season, you're going to be king. No, I'm just joking. In due season, in due season, you watch what God does.